Well, welcome, Serge, to a Zoom call today on Sunday, the 27th of June. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 3. It's the last time you'll hear me say that because this is our last message in that particular chapter. And before we dig in, let me just pray real quick for us. God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for your word that gives us what we need to live life to the full. Pray that you would help us hear what you have to say, understand what you have to say, and then show that we are your followers by doing what you say. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, uh, guys, when putting this message together, I came across a story that kind of grabbed my attention. This guy is dating this girl he meets at college, and he kind of falls in love, and he asks her to marry him. She says, yes, so dream come true, right? But he wants to get a blessing from her parents. I reckon he was old-fashioned. So they head back to her hometown. Uh, it walks into her parents' home, and he sees right there in the living room an interesting picture. It was, he discovered, a family heirloom passed down for generations. It was an original charcoal drawing of Madonna and son done by Pablo Picasso. And what amazed him was that this very valuable piece of art was hanging there on that wall by just a single nail. All that history, all of that value, and only one single nail holding it up. And that story kind of struck me because we Christians do much the same thing. We hang everything, all of our present beliefs, all of our future hopes on one single nail, the person of Jesus Christ. There might uh, be no better paragraph that illustrates this than the one we're gonna dig into today. What John does in this uh, paragraph is show us why Jesus is so unique, why he is so singular, why he is the bottom line, the ultimate reality, the nail on which everything that matters hangs. And John gives us four reasons for that. One is Jesus' origin, he came from heaven. Number two is his proclamation, what he claimed to be true, what he preached or declared to our world. Number three is his dominion, he dominates the whole universe. And number four, his reception, by which he determines our destiny. So let me just read this passage to you. John chapter three, verses 31 to 36. Here's what he says. He who comes from heaven, I'm sorry, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, just so you know, there's some disagreement about these verses. There are those who think that this is John the Baptist speaking. He was speaking, if you recall the last message, uh, in the previous paragraph, which ended with him saying that Jesus must increase and I, John the Baptist, must decrease. Now, some people think he's just keeping on talking in this particular paragraph. Others believe that these are the words of John, the writer of the gospel, 
and that he's writing his own editorial comments. And that is what I tend to believe. And here's why I believe that. In the original Greek, they don't use quotation marks. So translators have had to make their own call. Is this John the Baptist's comments or is this John the gospel writer's comments? My go-to version, the English standard version, does not put quotes around this paragraph. They have concluded it's John the writer's comments. For me, just the way it reads, it doesn't sound like John the Baptist, but it does sound like everything else the other John has written. So what I think is this, verse 30 ends what John the Baptist had to say. He must increase, I must decrease. And then John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, provides his own editorial comment as to why John the Baptist and everyone else must decrease. Here's why Jesus is so unique and, and should be increasing. This is why so many people in these three chapters have believed in him. This is why Jesus is the ultimate nail on which we hang everything. And here's why you should believe in him. John lays it out very practically. Jesus is this, he's that, he's this, he's that. And as a result, you ought to believe in him. John gets very practical here. And being practical is not a bad thing. Uh, as a kid, I used to love reading everything I could get my hands on about space and astronauts and all that, right? Maybe some of you did too. Well, you know, in the early days, NASA discovered that a ballpoint pen doesn't work in zero gravity. So over the next 10 years, they spent millions of dollars to uh, make a pen that would work in zero gravity, work upside down, work under water, work in extreme temperatures, work on any surface, including glass. 10 years, millions of dollars. You know what the Russians did? They used a pencil, a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> now that's practical. Well, that's what John is doing here. No use putting all of your resources and energy into hanging your life and your future on anything else other than this one person, Jesus Christ. And he gives us the practical reasons for why we should do that. Number one, Jesus descended from heaven. That's his origin. And we see it there in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. So unlike John the Baptist and unlike, frankly, any of the other human prophets who have come before him, Jesus' hometown was heaven. Not Bethlehem, but heaven. Jesus Christ, the only person who ever lived before he was born. Now, if you were to talk to somebody and ask them, well, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Well, you know, I'm from Indiana or Florida or North Carolina, or Colorado. Well, how'd you get to Northern Virginia? Tell me a little bit about your family history. Well, my mom and dad met in high school, they got married and they moved here or there and they'd go on with the story, right? But can you imagine that same conversation with Jesus? Where are you from? Well, Nazareth, but before that, Bethlehem, but before that, heaven. I was there eh, to put it in terms that you might be able to grasp for eons and eons unending. And me and my father and the Holy Spirit, we created everything. And you'd get to the point by the time he was finished that he who comes from above is above all. There's something you've probably noticed about the Gospel of John so far. When John writes, he doesn't pull any punches. 
He doesn't wait and give us, you know, all the good stuff at the end. He doesn't do a slow build with a few little stories about Jesus. And then all of a sudden there's this incredible climax at the end. Now he comes right out of the chute at the very beginning of this book and says, basically, oh, just so you know, just so you know, Jesus Christ is God occupying a human body. That's how it begins in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Go down a few verses to verse 14 and you discover something more about the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And verse 31 of our text today is essentially saying the same thing, just using different words. He who comes from above is above all. And then at the end of that verse, he who comes from a heaven is above all. John wants us to know that Jesus' origin was not an earthly origin. It's a heavenly origin. That's where he came from. Now, I discovered something interesting as I studied through this book. Not only does John emphasize this, but Jesus very often wants to underscore that his origin is from heaven. He says it a lot. In fact, it's uh, contained in so many places, we won't be able to chase them all down this morning, but I do, I do want to just give you a sampling. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me over about three chapters to John chapter six. It's a real long chapter, and Jesus is speaking in most of it. So I'm just going to point out some verses in this passage where Jesus is doing most of the talking. In verse 32, turn to, you skip down to 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, which is his way of saying, okay, this is really important. Got to pay attention here. This is going to be on the final exam, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. They're talking about the manna as they wandered in the wilderness. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Hmm, wonder what that is. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now then skip on down to verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And skip on down to verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Then verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Skip to verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, referring again to the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So why is Jesus Christ the nail on which you can hang everything and everyone? Well, unlike anyone else, his origin is heaven. This is a nail that won't break, won't fail. It's eternal, not earthly. It's an important truth. So important, in fact, that the church fathers, whenever they would get together and write creeds that basically were done to push back on heretical interpretations uh, of Christianity, they would bring in this truth. Most perhaps uh, famous is uh, the Nicene Creed, written in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. Here's just a portion of that creed I read for you. And you watch for the, he came down from heaven part. <clears throat> it says this, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, 
the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being and substance with the Father. Through him, all things were made for us. And for our salvation, here comes, he came down from heaven. So question, why did he come down from heaven? Did he come down from heaven to give us a really cool winter holiday and a few days off from work every year? No, not really. Did he come down from heaven to give us a nice, wonderful example and some teachings that people can read, you know, to better their own lives? No, not really. The angel told Mary exactly why he came. He will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's why he showed up. That's why John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb is a sacrificial animal used to atone for sins. Yeah, Mary had a little lamb, a lamb that could take away the sins of the world. Have you ever thought about this? The fact that Jesus Christ was the only person who was ever born in this world with the distinct purpose to die. I mean, I don't know of any parent who's holding their newborn that thinks that. They, they, see, they see that baby living and thriving and they wonder, oh, who they're gonna marry, uh, who they're, where they're going to go to college, what they're going to study, who their friends will be, what they will become as living people, right? As parents, we think about all the plans that might develop for that newborn's life, right? But God the Father had a plan for Jesus, and his purpose was death on a cross to save people from their sins. There's a really little poem that's pretty simple and short, but it kind of sums this concept up. <clears throat> it goes like this. Baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp the hopes of all the world. All the world could hang just fine upon that one nail that is Jesus because of his origin from heaven. <clears throat> John gives us a second reason. Jesus' proclamation, he declared truth, absolute truth to our world. Now watch this in verse 32. He, referring to Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So Jesus was from heaven, and therefore his testimony was from heaven. And because of this, his words, his testimony is superior to anyone and any other words. If you're wondering, that's sort of the whole reason there are red letter Bibles. And the only issue I have with red letter Bibles is that the entire Bible is the word of God. And we know from John's gospel that we just even read a part of here at the beginning that Jesus is the word. So if it's in the Bible, it's God and it's Jesus articulating God's words. His words are true, are more important than anybody else's words. And that means that everything that Jesus said when he was here is just as important as everything else in the scripture, because it's all God's words. So the Jewish religious leaders prompted an argument with Christ one time. They came out and they said this, well, Moses commanded us to give our wives a certificate of divorce if we wanted to ditch them. And Jesus said, well, yeah, that was because of the hardness of your heart. 
Because of that, Moses permitted you to divorce under certain circumstances. But then Jesus goes on and says this, but from the beginning, it was not so. Then Jesus goes on to state, here's what marriage is. So when a man will leave his family, join with a woman, become one flesh, right? There's Jesus responding to them, but he's taking them back to the beginning and how it was and how it was supposed to be from the very beginning. Do you know how Jesus knows that? Because he was there at the beginning. Later on, Jesus says, well, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days of Noah, they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and giving in marriage until Noah went into the ark. <clears throat> Those eight people went into the ark. Everybody else is carrying on as if life is normal until that happened. But then they all died in the flood. <clears throat> but when he said that, Jesus is not speaking uh, with uh, having done some history searches, Google searches. No, he was there at the beginning. He was there in that when that happened. He's speaking with firsthand knowledge. When Jesus speaks of Abraham, he says as much. They bring up Abraham, the Jews do, the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says, well, I want you to know something. Before Abraham was, I am. And then Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's firsthand testimony. He was around watching what Abraham was up to. Firsthand knowledge. Jesus speaks of the Old Testament, the creation, heaven, not because he read about it in a book. He was there. So Jesus is above, from above. He's, his testimony is also from above. And what he proclaimed was based on what he saw and heard, not theoretical, firsthand experience. So here's an obvious question. <clears throat> if God is speaking to the world through his son, how come nobody's listening? I mean, it must be frustrating for God, right? Heard a story about a guy who went to the doctor to get his hearing checked. He seemed to be having problems with it. The doctor examined him, finally pulled out the hearing aid, and immediately his hearing got better. He'd been wearing it in the wrong ear for 20 years. That'd be frustrating, right? But you know what it's like when you're talking to somebody and they're looking at you and maybe they're nodding occasionally, but you get a sense that they're not anywhere close to being involved in that conversation. They're like a million miles away. So imagine how God must feel because of situations like what we see in verse 32. Jesus is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the truth. He's testifying to the truth, yet no one receives it. That's what it says. But that's a bit of a hyperbole, kind of a literary hyperbole. It's true that generally most of the people in the world do not listen to Jesus' testimony, do not consider it true. It doesn't mean that nobody listens because verse 33 sort of says that some do. The people who do set their seal, that is, they mean, that means that they certify that what God says is true. The idea is that when Jesus is involved, you can have absolute confidence, confidence that when you stamp your seal on Jesus' testimony, you, you can confirm that you've got God's honest to gosh truth, because God is true. Now, everyone, now and then, someone will come along and go, well, you know, this doesn't work for me, uh, especially Christians even, they go, I can't, I, I, I can't figure out a way to turn from that sin. I can't, I've tried. It doesn't work for me. I guess I'm codependent. Maybe I'm addicted. I, I, don't, I don't know how to be happy. You know, I've been, maybe I've been scarred as a child. Maybe that's the reason. I know what the Bible says, but it, it, it just it doesn't work for me. I can't, I can't, I can't. Here it says that God is true. 
In Romans 3, 4, it says something even more emphatic. Let God be true, though everybody else on earth really were a liar. God says, hey, you, you can rejoice evermore. God says, you, you can be holy for I am holy. God says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You can have the mind of Christ on things. God says, hey, be thankful at everything. When a person goes, well, I just can't do that. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm going, well, okay. God says you can. You say you can't. So who's the liar? You're a liar. Let God be true. Because here's the deal. God never gives us a commandment without the power to be able to do the commandment. His commandment is his enablement. If he says rejoice evermore, it's because he knows that he can give you the power to be able to rejoice evermore. It can be done. Why? Because God only speaks truth. All right. God is true. So why is that? How can God be true? Well, he's seen everything. He's heard everything. He knows everything. It's not like he's going, oh my gosh, now it's the 21st century. I guess I didn't see that stuff coming. Didn't see codependency or addictive behavior coming. So I guess it's okay for you just to kind of go with it. Nope. When God gives command, you and I can do it because God will enable it to be done. Right? Here's the third reason. Jesus utterly dominates the universe. Here's the verse on that. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. So that's when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking God's words. For he gives the spirit without measure. So Jesus doesn't have the spirit in limited amounts. He gets the full oomph of the spirit. Well, why does he do that? Well, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament prophets, or even to John the Baptist, they were sometimes led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was pretty unique. He had the privilege of being filled with the Spirit from the womb, right? But the Holy Spirit's ability to empower was limited somewhat by man's own sinful, fallen you know, nature. This was not so with Jesus. He did not have a sinful, fallen human nature. He was God in human flesh. So when it came to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was able to operate in unlimited, unmitigated, full-on power, so much so that it couldn't be measured. It was unlimited. That's what John the Baptist said. He said he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus and remain on him. Jesus stood in the synagogue in Nazareth later, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, which is basically predicting the Holy Spirit's power on the Messiah who's to come. And it says, it's the Lord, Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. That's full on, unrestrained, unrestricted power. Now, something else is mentioned in verse 31, and we kind of ran over it. It says that he who comes from above is above all. Very simple statement. And it means what I think it says. He dominates the entire universe. Now, it's so important a thought that it's repeated later in the same verse. He who comes from heaven is above all. And then verse 35 augments that thought. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Okay, all things. What things? All things. Well, how much is all? Uh, all. Okay, let's get a little more specific. All things from the beginning of creation to the end of creation. All those things are within the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. John 1.3 says this, all things 
were made by Jesus. And without him was nothing made that was made. That's creation. John chapter 5, Jesus is going to say this. For the Father has put all things into the hands of his Son. Everything from the start of creation to the consummation of the creation is under the authority of Jesus. So here's what I mean. And to put this all together quickly, <clears throat> Jesus Christ created the universe. God the Father, through the agency of Jesus, created the universe, all things seen, all things unseen. And all things continue to exist through Jesus. So Jesus, directing the spirit, took the unformed mass of chaos and turned it into an ordered system, the cosmos. Jesus did that. Secondly, not only did he create it, he maintains it. He sustains it. You see this in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. See it in Colossians 1.17. In him, Jesus, all things consist, or another translation says, are held together. And third, Jesus will end it. He'll fold it all up at the end. How will he do it? I think it's going to be like this. Simply opens his hands. He's going to let go. And all the power that he has used to hold it together will be released. And it will just fall apart or disintegrate. Now, we know that matter is made up of rapidly moving particles held together by opposite charges, right? The big question people have asked for years is, well, how does everything hold together? There's been a lot of attempts to explain this. Uh, here's this from the book by Lee, Dr. Lee Chestnut called The Atom Speaks. I'll quote uh, this uh, little paragraph for you. He says this, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the new oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight without a charge. Now, if you're not scientific, you're thinking, well, who cares? Well, hold on. Everything we know, we operate according to this knowledge, right? According to Colum's law of electrostatic charge and magnetism that says that like charges repel each other. So how does this nucleus stay together with eight positively charged protons all connected really closely together? They should be splitting, they should be, it should be exploding. So the question is what, what went wrong? What, what holds this nucleus together? Why doesn't it just fly apart? Why don't all atoms just fly apart? Well, if you are a Bible reader, you now have an answer. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, Colossians chapter one, verse 17. Jesus holds it all together. He is the atomic glue, if you wanna say it that way. So he created it, he maintains it. And one day he's gonna be going done. He who comes from above, he who testifies only truth, will one day let it go. Because it says that all things are in his hands. There's a fourth reason. And that's this, Jesus, because of where he's from, because of what he proclaims and how he dominates everything, he will ultimately determine your destiny and mine. I think it's the best part. It's, it's Jesus' reception.
It's in verse 36, and it contains both an invitation and a warning. John 33, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Did you notice here? And the Bible so often does this. It just reduces all of humanity into two camps. One camp is those who believe. The other camp is those who do not obey. See what the Bible just did there? It eliminates easy believism. It equates belief to obedience. And that's what Jesus constantly talked about. Oh, you say you believe. Well, then you'll do what I tell you to do. You will obey. Those are the true believers. Those who have life are those who believe, that is, obey. And those who do not have life are those who do not obey, i.e., who don't really believe. The Bible constantly does this. Moreover, note that the result of believing or not believing isn't some far distant thing, but a present reality. It's placed in the present tense. Whoever believes in the Son, that's now, that's in the here and now, has eternal life. It's not, you know, well, one day you'll get eternal life if you believe. No, it begins now and it will last forever. Notice it goes on to say that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So that sounds like future tense, but watch this. But the wrath of God remains on him, present tense. That is also a current reality. So the idea is not that one day God's going to condemn those who did not trust in Christ. Instead, they are already sitting there in it. They are living, they are living in a state of perpetual condemnation. And the only hope to be rescued from that is Jesus Christ coming from heaven to earth to save them. That's why the angel told Mary to call his name Jesus, because he will save their people, his people, from their sins. They are in a state of condemnation, and the only hope for rescue is to believe. And the sad truth is that most won't believe, but some will. And that's why verse 32 and 33 say that. No one receives this testimony, generally true, but it's also true that this general statement has exceptions. And the person who has received Jesus' uh, testimony has certified that what God says about being saved and how to be saved is true. So see, to understand spiritual life, we got to understand spiritual death. It's not like people are born into this world and we're all kind of wonderful, good people. Uh, and then we fan the flame of goodness and do some good things. And then we get better. We read, we read books on how to get better and how to self-realize, all that stuff. No, the Bible says something totally different. It says we're born into this world in what condition? Spiritually dead. Yeah, we have bodies, we have personalities, but spiritually dead. Ephesians says we were born dead in trespasses and sins. I got news for you. Dead people don't do a whole lot to improve their situation. You could yell at a dead person. It won't respond, won't get up, won't, won't try to duke it out with you. You can poke it, prod it, hit it, nothing. Unless there is a resurrection of life, there's no response. Well, God, by his grace, enables men and women and kids to believe in him. And when they do that, they receive him. They are infused with spiritual life. They come alive spiritually. They're resurrected spiritually. See, the world is populated with a whole bunch of spiritually dead people. 
already under the sentence of the wrath of God. And the only rescue is what Jesus Christ is all about. That's why he is the nail on which everything hangs. Jesus said, look, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, he who has the son has life. So the question is, will you believe? Will you believe? This is why John writes his book, to give you all the information you need to basically make a, to make a commitment to believe. Will you hang everything, all of your present beliefs and future hopes on Jesus and him alone? That's the challenge. And John says, you should do that because that's what the father has done. He's hung all of our sin on Christ and then hung his son on a cross. And in doing so, God is saying that he is hanging the hopes of all humanity on Christ in Christ alone. Now, you can believe or you can join the multitudes that set their seal and certify that God is a liar, that Jesus was a charlatan, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection meant nothing. And in so doing, you seal your own fate. Because as John writes here and pleads here, you, you, gotta, you just gotta take Jesus seriously because he is above all and he will have the final say. Now, before that happens, could you realize who it was that put those nails in Jesus' hands and feet? Yeah, in reality, I did. I did, we, we did. He died for our sins. He died in our place. And so that makes it possible that when you say, man, God, I have no idea how you can do this, how you can forgive me, but I hope you can. Here's what God's gonna to respond to you. And of course I can, of course I can. I came and took this punishment for you. I sent my son. Jesus says, I, I so love you. And my giving up my life for you proved my love for you. Can't you see that? So come on, believe, because it's true. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this um, endorsement of Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. But he's a, he's a majestic figure. He came from heaven. He proclaims the truth. He wants us to believe that truth. He's gonna, oh, he's gonna dominate everything. He's going to be the boss of everything. He's going to, to control everything. He's going to, he's going to determine our destiny. So, Lord, I pray people are hearing this and they haven't come to you yet, that they would be convinced by this argument by John that Jesus is worth believing in. And I pray that that would happen for them today. In Christ's name, amen.